let's go into the pre-ramble. We're back <laughs> after about three weeks, I think it is. And not only are we uh, back to delight you after the Canadians, there has to be a correction about the Canadians. We attributed David Bauer as being Canadian, but apparently, according to IMDB, he was born in Chicago. Hey, it's the other side of the lake. Oh, it's, you could see Canada from the maternity ward. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Rose Tinted Black and White Television. This is the programme where my co-host David Newell and, Hello. and me, Guy Morgan, ruminate about generally British television shows that were on screen between 1956, the age of Suez, and the three-day week, which is in 1974, uh, and comprised the golden age of British television. And we have come back with the excellent idea, proffered by Dave, of small screen to big screen, which I think we ought to point out that is not necessarily all the kind of retro things that have just been done, but things that are done within the broad scope of the period of the TV series. Is that right? Yes, we're looking at the, uh, I suppose, the very strange phenomena uh, of uh, feature films that were made based upon TV series that were still going on at the time. Uh, the notion of do we, you know, is that in included in, in like the big overriding arc of story, storytelling that they may have, may have had for Bless This House? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but the, 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 the aspect is, uh, certainly during the early 70s, it became a very, very profitable way um, for film production companies to be coining it in. And it gave um, you know, the, the paying audience uh, big screen versions of what they enjoyed at home for free. Yes. I think the most important thing to point out about that is that in the early days, most people had black and white TVs, mm -hmm. certainly up to about 1970. So even if you weren't being offered gory action or salacious bits, mm -hmm. then at least you could go and see something on a really big screen in colour. Yes, yeah. Um, you're right. In, in the early 90s, uh, there was that idea of dipping back uh, into the into the back catalogue, uh, mainly obviously US films, um, and that would be big screen versions of um, well, The Saint that we've that we've already mentioned, The Beverly Hillbillies, Car Fifty Four, Where Are You, The Flintstones, uh, and there was a whole raft, uh, but most of them kind of like you know lost in space, sort of dated back to those like sixties heydays, um, and there were other um, feature films, one of which obviously we we can't mention for reasons of your health. Um, no, no. Um, can't mention. But, I mean, particularly, but it's also out of period. There were plans to produce Avengers feature films. Okay. Back in the day when the Avengers was being made, even in the, the Kathy Gale days. So they didn't come to pass for various reasons. It's interesting to imagine the reasons why things didn't get off the ground when some... Uh, less likely things did, but we'll come to that. Now, I have a list <gasps> which didn't take any hard work on my part at all because there you is actually have a to list. remember. <laughs> it, it's certainly is. 
Well, it's finding the right title, the right string of words, which will give you the information. And there is an awful lot of stuff going back. I think really a lot of film studio executives looking back to their childhood and thinking, oh, I enjoyed that series. Why don't we make a feature film out of it? And then some people looking back to the 1960s to something that was near perfect as a TV show. And then in 1998, creating an abomination, which was a crime against cinema. I I told him not to talk about this. I really have. I do keep reminding him, listeners, Um, but he, he just keeps bringing it back to it. But we'll forget about that. We'll pass over it. Um, Dave, what's the earliest film that you've got? I suppose the earliest films I I remember going to to see because they seem to to dominate the the, the box office, uh, and we can't underestimate the chunk of change that they did take. Um, and I remember being taken like a family day out, family family cinema trip uh, to see Please Sir. Um, the the motion picture, uh, and it's and it sort of like set the template uh, for all the others to come. Because what you do is you you've got an inherited audience, because people who who have enjoyed watching it on TV. Oh, I'm going to go and see it on the big screens. It's three times as long, and you've got uh, you know the same cast. You've got the 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 same cast, and you might bring in. Um, usually some some familiar TV faces uh, that would put people at ease. Um, and invariably that would involve either Arthur Mollard or Queenie Watts. And it was it was cheap and cheerful and there was that familiarity to it. Um, I think someone critiqued um, about the fact that on the buses, which was which was one of the biggest box office draws in 1971, um, and couldn't believe it was uh, produced in the same year as A Clockwork Orange and The French Connection, uh, almost as if there there was some kind of time disparity from it. But you know, if you if you look back um, at, at the time on a ninety thousand pound budget for On the Buses at the cinema, absolutely raked it in. Um, and it kept Hammer films, you know, going for probably about another five or six years, those cheap and cheerful films. Um, and on the buses, you know, despite Hammer winning a Queen's Award for industry and, and having some very fine motion pictures, um, like Dracula, Prince of Darkness or Plague of the Zombies, it was it was Hammer's biggest hit. They couldn't believe it when they saw the box office returns. I think, actually, in Britain, it even outboxed, officed the Bond films. Didn't Diamonds it? are forever. Apparently, yeah, if you look at or, or check um, your facts and figures. I know it was released earlier in the year, uh, but, yes, yeah, certainly at the time, it was it was a huge box office champ. And then, uh, based on that, we had uh, Mutiny on the Buses, and then we had Holiday on the Buses, which obviously I felt a bit of a local connection to because um, it was filmed at huge expense um, at Pontins in Prestatin. Vast expense, going on location. And for a while, those three films became Britain's biggest um, and most successful box office trilogy until I think something called like Star Wars came along and just outperformed it, only just. Right. So, I mean, you talked about a template. Hmm. And please, sir, being a template, what is the kind of typical big screen version of 
a TV series? Uh, well, if if I remember my my screenwriting courses and stuff like this, what you do is you base part of it, part of the story, in the precinct um, with which the viewers, TV viewers, are familiar. So you you would have the school or you would have like the bus factory or you would have like in Love Thy Neighbour, you'd have like the neighbourhood. But then because you've got a little bit more money, uh, you would then alter and go to a different precinct. Uh, So say, for example, please, sir, they go to an outward bounds centre or it should be out of bounds centre because they get up to all kinds of uh, japes. Um, And the notion there is we can give the viewers what they're familiar with, the Fen Street School, but we can we can go somewhere else. Hence the idea of holiday on the buses or, or mutiny on the buses. Um, I suppose, I know it's just a couple of years outside, but if anyone uh, remembers going to see the feature film version of Are You Being Served? They go on a holiday to Spain. Yes. Um... That, that, that notion of we're, we're using that, that precinct that we're familiar with, Grace Brothers Stores, um, but we're we're going somewhere else. Yes, and presumably you might have some location filming. Did they actually go to Spain for this? Uh, certainly in the version I've seen, it doesn't appear to go very near Spain. <laughs> but uh, these, you know, these the feature films, I mean, you've got the Frankie Howard ones, you know, up Pompeii, up the Chastity Belt, up the front. Um, again, kind of like hugely um, popular because you've got that that TV familiarity and with the with the sitcoms because because mainly it was sitcoms that seemed to so to convert uh, but you did have that um, kind of little outbreaks of uh, drama series so you do have um, Callan there was a feature film oddly enough I think it was based on the pilot episode of Callan was it which is on the book was it Red File for Callan so it's yeah. it's it's very similar in that um, and Sweeney uh, that was just like a big, long, more violent episode of of the TV show. And then Sweeney 2, which originally was going to be called Sweeney 2, the blag, until it was pointed out, I'm not quite sure what that means. So we'll, we'll just leave it as Sweeney 2. But again, you had more that familiarity, perhaps more uh, a little bit more location, a little bit more rough and tumble. So yeah, drama ones were less prominent um, but the sitcoms you know for the love of ada uh like i said bless this house i've been served love thy neighbor uh, on the buses um the lovers uh yeah it's it's massively surprising and and for a while uh those sorts of things were kind of like a mainstay um and i suppose the resuscitation unit of the British film industry. Yes, I mean, that and the carry-ons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's partly, I suppose you could say, it's the opening up or the more permissive society that you could have. uh, Certainly a lot of men leering over some extremely well-endowed women whose tops might fly off. That's by accident, yeah. And on the other hand... You've also got the Confessions movies, haven't you? Yes, Confessions, Robert, um, you know, Robin Asquith, um, again, based on a successful series of lewd books um, and made into a ridiculously series of lewd films, uh, which, again, 
uh, you know, was was still ringing the box office bell. So we had sort of like a decade um, of this, and then as the as the 70s ended, uh, and and maybe the because of the two tragedies behind it, you know, you had um, a feature film version of uh, George and Mildred, and a feature film version of Rising Damp and Porridge, and and all three. Uh, had the you know the uh, the the difficulty of of losing a star, you know featured star, you know not long after it had either gone into production or not long after it had been released. Yeah, with our bracket, the the golden age ends in nineteen seventy four, but it's it's kind of within the ballpark because you go mm. up to we're going with those we're going up to about nineteen eighty, aren't we? Yeah, but that they would have had that established audience. And, and as we mentioned before, the, the really peculiar thing is that you would go and see that at the cinema and it appeared to, there wouldn't necessarily be any references to it in the ongoing TV series because the TV series would still be being made. You know, there wasn't that, that idea of, right, we've finished making the TV series. Oh, you know what? Maybe we can take one more trip to the well and we'll we'll do a feature film. Uh, uh, version. So those ones that we mentioned earlier, those 90s, you know, revivals, um, it's it's kind of less so. Although over the, you know, the past few years, we've had films where the, the TV series itself has, has still been going on, like Keith Lemon or Ali G or um, Mrs. Brown's Boys um, or even Spooks. You know, there's, yes, the, the, where the TV series would still be going on but they i think they they have to be a little bit smarter now so it fits into the that that created universe yes they kind of stand alone i mean it didn't really affect the dramatic arc of mrs brown's boys did it uh no in terms of um lengthy character development uh he's going well i think you know and you wouldn't have die hard fans going well i think you if you remember in series two episode four Remember, there was that scene when they were talking about that long lost uncle. Uh, so yeah, there wasn't, there wouldn't be like a a, a massive aspect of people's continuity. Um, whereas a few years before that, you had the very weirdness of um, the X Files feature films attempting to slot into the overriding arc of a TV series, which was a bit ropey anyway. Which was a bit ropey anyway, and um, and if you hadn't been watching the TV series. Uh, you sing, oh, I'm not quite sure what's what's going on. But the, the idea behind all these is, is that you would have that, that inherited audience. The only mystery we have is who chose what got made. Because if you look at TV, you know, in the 1970s, um, whereas we've we've got feature film versions of, of many sitcoms, and that said, some action series uh, as well. And others, uh, like you said, may have gone into development. You know, there may have been shoestring the movie or or whatever. Uh, uh, and others just thought, I don't know how we can do it as a as a feature film. I just can't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it's surprisingly early this move to the big screen. What I've got here and I've looked at is 1955. Now there were two TV series that transferred to the big screen would you like to hazard a guess as to which they are right okay 55 i'm going to have a guess um i don't know the army game what not good to wikipedia here though i may have yeah, probably skipped don't. over it uh, um, uh, let's have a look now, it, 
55? Oh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I mean, the, uh, I, I guess one of the weird ones, um, and this is sort of looking at it the other way around, uh, is the blue lamp in which uh, George Dixon gets gunned down by a cowardly Dirk Bogard who eventually gets caught by Jimmy Hanley. Uh, and then that character of George Dixon apparently proved so popular he came back for a massively successful and long-running TV series, sort of revived. Yes, Doctor Who-like. Yeah, Doctor Who-like. Madigan um, did the same uh, as well. Dead at the end of the feature film. Hey, bring him back. Um, have you heard of It's a Great Day? Uh, no. Maybe it wasn't such a good day after all then. <laughs> it's a Great Day is a 1955 British comedy film directed by John Warrington, a spin-off from the popular soap The Grove Family. Right. Stars Ruth Dunning as Gladys Grove, Edward Evans as Bob Grove, and Sid James as Harry Mason. Nancy Roberts as Gran played the same role in the TV series uh, and apparently stole the show every time. This cheaply made feature version of the show, uh, which is kind of a lodestone for all of British mm. TV that transferred uh, to the cinema, was produced quickly and efficiently by Butcher's Films with, Ooh, yeah. with the original cast and now looks like a perfect period piece. This is the Radio Times, I'm quoting uh, via Wikipedia. The plot is wonderfully naive, casting doubt on upright Mr Grove's integrity, and the cast is studded with marvellous 1950s faces, such as Sid James, Victor Madden, Michael Balfour, and Vera Day. There you go. So when we talk about American stuff, obviously the Americans were there. There's, there was kind of mention of, there was a Dragnet movie in 1954. Yeah, Dragnet, uh, another one in 69, yeah, uh, or 67. Um, yeah. Uh, there were various versions of the Lone Rangers in the, yes, uh, yeah. the 50s. Um, but the one I was thinking of, the one that when you first suggested this, I thought, all oh, right, we can go back. The Quatermass Experiment. All right, yes, yeah, I suppose. Uh, now, now, these really are an oddity, aren't they? Because um, we, we mentioned before about you've got that familiarity of, of the characters, uh, but because Quatermass up until this point had been pay, played by people on TV and then doing a feature film um, version, those who, who had bought into the television show would have found, like I said, those very familiar elements because it would be the same story. Yes, but not that. necessarily the same Quatermass. No, it, this was, um, again, um, Hammer films or possibly back when they used to be exclusive films, uh, they would they would bring in a big buck star, in this case, Brian Don Levy. Yes, that one. <laughs> uh, and that would presumably give them an inroad into... American audiences, um, how they may explain Jack Warden and, and, and Sid James and Brian Forbes and the like who, who turn up in Quatermass 2, um, how they would explain those to American audiences is unexplained. No. Um, apparently, Nigel Neal wasn't involved in the first one and wasn't particularly impressed by it. I think he was involved in Quatermass 2. Uh, which is kind of why it's better 
basically. Though one of the things he objected to was they had this habit of creating sections of film for overseas audiences. Okay. Very probably the continent, who were used to more cosmopolitan fare, shall we say. Mm. And I think I'm right in saying that they mentioned IMDb, that Nigel Neal thought that it was inappropriate and out of place for a village pub in Britain to have a topless barmaid. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to go with that. Yes, and the uh, in the late fifties, I don't think it was particularly common. No, um, Soho maybe uh, a village pub um, being taken over by alien creatures, probably unless not. it was like a big promotion night or, or something like that for Watney's Red Barrel or something. I don't know. And then, of course, having talked about those two quartermasters, then. The really special one is Quite a Mess in the Pit in 1967, mm. which is in colour, because if you see the first two, there's not a lot of point in going to watch it, except to be on a big screen. The effects aren't that fantastic. Quite a Mess 2 has kind of reasonable effects, but Quite a Mess in the Pit, I mean, that is, that's luxurious. I think that still stands up. Very scary. uh, And it's about something as well. Yeah, it is. And it's one of the many roles that Julian Glover gets turned into ashes, basically, or just crumbles. Um, The same thing happens to him in, or he gets punched, actually, in uh, Tom Baker's Doctor Who. And, last Crusade, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He he, yeah. he crumbles to dust because he's chosen poorly, as it <laughs> says. Yes, so he obviously specialises in uh, those particular roles, and of course he is a pillar of British television and film. One that surprised me on this list was Sword of Sherwood Forest. Is was that I suppose a spin-off from the TV series uh, because you'd have. I'd imagine the same props and locations um, still knocking around. Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, this is a Hammer film. Okay. Uh, and it stars Richard Green. It says, apart from Green, none of the original cast from The Adventures of Robin Hood appear in the film. Oh, oh you directed by... down. <laughs> it's directed by Terence Fisher. And would you care to guess given its provenance, who played the Sheriff of Nottingham? Now, I think in one of these, does perhaps in an early role, it's not Robert Shaw, is it? So I know he played the um, Sheriff of Nottingham later on in life. No, I mean, if you're you're running Hammer films and you want someone who looks slightly gaunt and sinister... Oh, it's going to have to be Mr Christopher Lee. No. Oh, no. The other, oh, one. Right. Um, the other one, Peter Cushing. If you need peas and they need a mushing, who are you going to call? Peter Cushing. Yes, because he does look a bit like the guy who played the Sheriff of Nottingham uh, in the series. I mean, he has the cheekbones mm. and um, he can probably goatee. fit it. Yeah. The goatee. And uh, probably fits into the same smock or um, and cape and stuff like that. So um, that was a... A surprise to me because I didn't even know it existed. And to be honest, I don't think I've seen it crop up even on Talking Pictures TV, though I may not have been concentrating. Mm. But it was an Eastman colour, apparently. 
in Megascope. <gasps> Megascope sounds fantastic. That sounds oh, it's like the IMAX of its day. It's like a wraparound movie experience. And uh, probably the last appearance of Richard Green in tights, I think, as far as I'm aware. Now, there was another successful spin-off in the mid-60s, again involving Peter Cushing. Oh, right, yeah, there would be the um, the Doctor Who films. Now, uh, obviously, with the recent demise and very sad loss of uh, Bernard Cribbins, um, both that film, uh, the, one, the one he's in, you know, Doctor Who, um, uh, both films, Doctor Who and the Daleks and um, Daleks' Invasion of Earth, 2150 AD. Have had a little bit of a revival because haven't they been recently um, all cleaned and polished and, and available now in 4K? Yes, they had Roberta Tovey, I think it is, who was in it, um, appeared on uh, a radio programme and talked about just how, you know, what an experience it was because she was quite young when it was made. Yes, they look spanking. In fact, I think Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD is going to be on Talking Pictures sometime very soon. It's on quite often, but actually, I think it's cracking. The spaceship effects are not quite bad. interesting. There's, there's loads of special effects, loads of things blowing up. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's you know, it's very impressive. Although uh, I, I suppose to to the pernickety out there in the audience, um, twenty one fifty AD does look remarkably like the sixties. With a lot of bombed out shelters. And it sort of does hark back to what if the Nazis had invaded and they would have been in giant pepper pots, ruthless, heartless beings. But, you know, what you're talking about is 20 or more years ago, that sort of thing might have been a real prospect. And it's kind of maybe drawing on something like, have you ever seen it happened here? Oh, right. Yeah. Is that the Kevin Brownlow one? Yeah. yeah, which you know, imagines what it was like if the Germans um, had invaded and uh, taken over. And it's a pretty good film, I think. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very unsettling. But Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD is a kind of more reassuring yes. uh, yeah. version it of that. seems to be a, a potential solution to it. And it could get made because... Terry Nation still had the rights to uh, the Daleks. And do you know the story behind that? Was it one of those just being very, very shrewd in retaining copyright on not necessarily obviously the character of Doctor Who, but the character of, of, of the Daleks within their own right, which I suppose led to the idea of that's why you had um, um, Dalek annuals and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, I also... Um, the remote control Dalek, which I have downstairs and I get to play with occasionally. Yes. But the person who actually struck out the clause that said the BBC retains rights and all of these things and then sent the contract in and the BBC didn't notice was Bevel Virtue. Oh, ouch. Oh, Bezo, um, what have you done? What have you done? She was somebody who actually was behind a huge amount of stuff not only then but later on obviously men behaving badly etc etc and um, she recently passed and another one of those people without whom British television wouldn't have been the same. Quick reminder as well um, at the time of going to press which is um, today the 7th of August um, 
Dalek Mania uh, is available on Talking Pictures TV Encore, which is looks at the history um, of the Daleks um, with particular emphasis on those two big bucks films. Oh, great. Well, I shall catch up with that. Um, Talking Pictures TV Encore, just type it into your search engine and bring it up and then sign in. It's free and hugely enjoyable if you want to catch up with uh, various things. Right. So we've talked mainly about British movies. I mean, there are other things from across the pond, such as Batman the movie. Batman the movie um, with with Adam West. And we still have one from, again, from the 19, tail end of the 1960s, which is still one of the biggest film franchises going, which is Mission Impossible. Um, yes, of course. We still have, have that going. Um, there have been attempts to, to perhaps revive other franchises. Guy Ritchie had a go with The Man from Uncle um, a few years back. Uh, but I think at no point did anyone tell the production team that, hey, this is based on an old TV series, you know, uh, because they don't take any of the tropes, elements, music score, um, props, settings, mood, pace, uh, adventure from the TV series and use it in the feature film. Aside from that, they were very faithful. Yeah, absolutely. It's on the money. Couldn't tell the difference. That does sound very familiar if you are deeply attached to a particular series and then someone produces a big screen turkey. That could be very painful. What else have we got? I mean, they also had versions at the time with Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin, um, David McCallum and Robert Vaughan, which were basically two-parters. And and released in the cinema. So um, the helicopter spies... Um, the Spy in the Green Hat, or One Spy Too Many, you know, for those who had watched it on TV, uh, you would have that familiarity. I think Mission Impossible did it once. They did Mission Impossible versus the mob. Uh, and, and I think they cobbled together uh, two, two episodes. And I guess you would be really disappointed because um, not only had you seen a version of this particular story you'd actually seen this particular story yes but in color yes if you hadn't got a color tv already uh this... thunderbirds as well don't forget thunderbirds did thunderbirds yeah. go thunderbirds are go which um wikipedia say is a 1966 british science fiction puppet film based on the series by jerry and sylvia anderson written by the andersons and directed by david lane Thunderbirds are go concerns spacecraft Zero X and its human mission to Mars. And it fun uh, suffers a malfunction during re-entry and international rescue have to mount a life-saving mission. Um, so you get to see all their wonderful machines filmed between March and June in 1966 at the Century 21 Studios on the Slough Trading Estate, and on location in Portugal. Yay! Thunderbirds Ago features guest appearances by puppet versions of Cliff Richard and the Shadows, in a dream sequence, apparently. And although early reviews praised the film as a successful cinematic transfer of the TV series, it drew a lukewarm public response and proved to be a box office failure. 
Oh. They had another go with Thunderbird 6, uh, and that kind of went the same way. I mean, of course, they had a, a later big screen version, about 2004. Uh, yes, yeah, with um, uh, Sir Ben Kingsley as The Hood. What wonderful casting. Was Joanna Lumley Lady Penelope? Uh, no, Joanna Miles is. Right. And uh, I think it's um, and Ron Cook is Parker. And Anthony Edwards is Brains. That's all very interesting casting. I, I didn't see it myself. Don't. Um, is my recommend. That's my thumbs up recommendation. Right. So we've talked about Batman. And in future episodes, we may have to talk about the Dead Hand of Camp, which may have laid to rest a, a great many series. I mean, interestingly enough, not Mission Impossible because they didn't get Camp. Mm. But certainly things like Batman it did start to infect the Avengers and uh, Man from Uncle, and they, that could be one of the reasons why they weren't able to sustain themselves. Other films, I mean, not actually versions of the TV shows, but, of course, Morecambe and Wise were in a couple of films. In Morecambe and Wise, uh, yeah, that Riviera Touch, The Magnificent Two. Um, again, you playing on there their familiar TV personas, uh, but then putting a, um, in that Riviera touch, um, putting a a, um, a spy um, thriller wrap around them. Uh, and in The Magnificent Two, obviously they get caught up in a um, Central American revolution. Which is always difficult when you're a comedy double act, isn't it? Mm. Um, the, I mean, The Intelligence Men, they also made that, which again was one of those, those spy thrillers. Um, I suppose a, a really peculiar example, uh, but again, if it works on TV, it can work on as a low budget film, would be the Dick Emery show, which got um, made into the, the, the feature film, Ooh, You Are Awful, uh, which sort of had a plot attached to it um, about some missing money or, or, or something. Um, and Dick Emery was able to, to perhaps play some of his favourite characters from TV, and you're able to see it on the big screen. Yes, I'm not entirely sure. I did find Dick Emery quite funny during the 60s, as he kind of progressed into uh, the 70s and 80s. I, like with a lot of people, I kind of began to struggle with, perhaps it was just different times, but um, I didn't particularly warm to his screen personas, and there were some fairly awful... Are we going to use the word characters. stereotyping? <laughs> Um, yes, ethnic stereotyping, I think, is mm. uh, would fit into some of that. Um, and it's not just a question of looking back with woke specs. I didn't like it at the time. I thought that this, that this is just wrong. And it's a bit like the black and white minstrels. It's just mm. really Which thankfully funny. didn't transfer to the big screen. You can imagine the, the pitch meeting for that. There were other people who made TV series and which kind of went against the grain when they hit the big screen. I'm talking about Head. All right, yeah. Uh, again, recently recently passed away only last week, Bob Raffleson, um, the director and, and creator of, uh, of The Monkeys, along with Jack Nicholson um, and Harry Dean Stanton and a shed load of drugs. Uh, and the idea is that they 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 were kind of experimenting and see what how far can we take this 
what can we do with it? What can we explore? And head is is a um, it really head is a bit of a head trip. It's very odd. I mean, it's it's even odder if you don't see it in colour. I suspect because I remember watching it in black and white and thinking, hmm. Because if I remember rightly, there's they kind of use video effects. Yes, yeah. There's, oh. there's loads of fast editing and clips and uh, that. I, I suppose now you might call it sampling. Uh, you know, that idea of taking taking clips out of context or, you know, being used in a uh, in a satirical and funny way. The Wikipedia entry says the plot and peak moments of the film came from a weekend visit to Ojai, California. I don't know how you pronounce that. It's a resort where the monkeys, Bob Raffleson and Jack Nicholson, brainstormed into a tape recorder reportedly with the aid of a quantity of marijuana. Jack Nicholson then took the tapes and used them as the basis for his screenplay, which, according to Raffleson, he structured while under the influence of LSD. I think that is going to affect your vision of the film. Can we say, hey, man, it was the 60s? Is that <laughs> we can? Is, is that our get-out clause? It could be. When the band learned that they would not be allowed to direct themselves or to receive screenwriting credit, Delenz, Jones and Nesmith staged a one-day walkout, leaving Talk, the only monkey on the set, the first day. The strike ended after one day when, to mollify the monkeys, the studio agreed to a larger percentage share of the film's net for the group. But the incident damaged the monkeys' relationship with Raffleson and Birchneider and would effectively end their professional relationship together. There was also the thing about wanting to write their own music, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, the, that idea of uh, we are we are a band, we're musicians. You know, we this is what we we want to do. And I know um, Mike Nesmith was found that particularly difficult to to take. He considered himself a serious musician. Yes, he was quite a thoughtful chap, Mm. um, by all accounts. Uh, Anyway, returning back to British old favourites, the next one I've got here, though you might be able to tell me of an earlier one between 1968 and 71, is Dad's Army. Yes, Dad's Army. Um, Now, in the Dad's Army feature film is quite interesting in in relation to other sitcom feature films, uh, because it's an origin story. Yes. It's an origin story. So much like every time we go and see a film version featuring anything involving Batman or the Batman, um, we have to be told their origin story. Uh, And it's sort of quite rare to have a a sitcom-inspired motion picture that goes back to the beginning yes i mean you obviously they did that in one half hour episode pretty much um right at the beginning the first episode of dad's army which starts because the whole thing is a flashback because it starts in an i'm backing britain dinner Hmm. um where they all look a, a lot older and um, Arthur Lowe is giving a speech. James Beck, as Private Walker, is actually smoking a cigar, and they've grayed him up and everything. <laughs> How um, old did Clive Dunn look? I, I can't remember if he was there, though he could have been extraordinarily ancient. He was, in fact, only in his 40s, I think. I've got barely that, yeah. Yeah. There is another subject that we ought to return to, and that is stalwarts of uh, British television 
who were prisoners of war and a lot of whom were in the Great Escape Camp for real. Oh, yeah, I suppose you, 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 uh, we've mentioned this before um, about the the, the 60s and and leading on to the 70s is, and it becomes less and less now, less and less frequent, where you you have a, a generation of actors who have done something in their life other than act. Yes. There is a Sam Kidd autobiography called For You, The War Is Over, mm. which is definitely worth reading because it's not the, school, the public schoolboy and Colditz version that people might have come to expect. It's about being a rifleman getting taken prisoner within sight of the White Cliffs of Dover oh. um, and, and then getting taken to a prison camp in Poland and spending five years waiting to get and then getting liberated by the Russians. Um, so that's definitely uh, worth a read. Um, and I think would actually probably make a good TV series. His son, Jonathan Kidd, is obviously the keeper of that flame. So I would like to see if he has any uh, plans to get anything like that moving. Returning to Dad's Army, the feature film made a number of significant changes, which were imposed by Columbia Pictures. Oh, get um, them throwing their weight around. Because they recast Liz Fraser as Mavis Pike instead of Janet Davis and filming outdoor scenes in Chalfont St Giles rather than Thetford. The bank was now Martins rather than the Swallow Bank. And with the increase in budget, the set interiors and the vehicles were completely different. And there's Another notable change was the vehicle portraying Jones Butcher's van. In the series, the van was a 1935 Ford BB, still registered as BUC 852, whereas a closed cab Ford, model AA, was used in the film. So there you go. Yeah. Right, 1971. You only create disappointment if you were going to see it at the cinema. Yes, I mean, I expect Columbia received letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have sent one. Hey, you, Columbia Pictures. We've kind of covered the On the Buses and its sequels. Mm. That was 1971 to, you know, the early 70s. Just talk about Reg Varney. Uh, Reg Varney uh, came to the fore, I suppose, uh, um, initially in uh, The Rag Trade, which was a a hugely popular... um, TV program, uh, a I suppose a little bit of a groundbreaking TV program as well, kind of like that working class um, element. Dare I say, almost left wing um, for the features of you know trade unionism being featured with with Miriam Carlin um, asking and calling and blowing her whistle and saying everybody out. Uh, and and Reg Varney all of a uh, you know became that uh, um, go to person who would, would be able to fulfil that role. Um, Reg Varney's always a good pub quiz question because he was the first person in the UK, allegedly, to use a cash point. Which yeah. is quite impressive. It shows that he was always looking to the future. Always looking to the um, future, but also the idea of, wait a minute, we're going to launch this cash point type thing, get me a big star. Hey, we've got Reg Varney. Uh, and the, the, the on the buses... Uh, trilogy in the TV series obviously cemented that fame, um, and then he he tried to have a go at doing stuff which was a little bit more um, a little bit more serious. So um, the best pair of legs in the business 
where I think he stars opposite Diane Coupland and he, he has a drag act. It wasn't John Osborne's The Entertainer, let's put it like that. And, and I suppose, like many people, as, as public attitudes or, or um, public favouritism changes, uh, all of a sudden he sort of found himself out in the wilderness um, a little bit. So when the, the rag trade was revived in the 1970s, he was far too old to that. I think it might have been Christopher Beanie who was was brought in to, um, to do that, but some of the old cast did return. Yeah, he had a particular cheeky chappy sort of yes, persona, that, didn't he? There wasn't that, he didn't perhaps have that, that big sort of like international breakout, you know, where in, in the 1960s there would be a lot of British film or, or, or TV comedians who sort of got onto that international, so, you know, like, uh, um, like Terry Thomas, um, to a certain degree, or even um, Norman Wisdom, you know, getting mm. uh, Reg Vonnie never seemed to be never seemed to be part of that process, and and maybe he was just happy, you know, doing those on the buses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were changing times. We talked about 1980 and the kind of the last of the the big sitcom feature films, and that was the time of the comic strip and the young ones and mm-hmm. the uh, changing of the guard, I suppose you could say. Yes. Yeah. Um, All of a sudden, um, you know, became, became different. And the, you know, the comic strip itself, they went down the route of, of making feature films as well. You know, they had the Supergrass, uh, I suppose whoops apocalypse, um, the Pope must diet, um, as it's kind of pol- politely got rebranded, uh, but yeah, that that became a, a a big aspect of of British comedy. That idea of, of moving across into into feature films. What else have we got? Leaving comedy for a moment. Uh, Doomwatch. Yeah, Doomwatch uh, was a feature film. Ian Bannon, Judy Geeson, uh starring starring that. And again, I think that is one of those reimagined stories from the TV series. Yes, I mean, uh, written by Clive Exton. Uh, in the United States, it was released by Embassy Pictures with the alternative title, Island of the Ghouls. Oh, I don't, oh, I don't know which one I prefer. Island of the Ghouls or Doomwatch? Oh, I don't know. In the film, the waters surrounding an island become contaminated by chemical dumping and people who eat fish caught in those waters become deformed and violent. It was made at Pinewood Studios. Location shooting took place around Paul Keris, Mevigisi, and the Paul Perrow and Chapel Porth in Cornwall. I don't think it received particularly good reviews. Somebody described it as a rather poor horror film, even though the issues were very valid. Yes, it didn't have any kind of zing about it, as far as I remember. You know, I suppose Doomwatch is, is strange in that request, is that the regular stars of Doomwatch... Are barely in it. Yes, I mean, he does all the heavy lifting. Yes, that's right. And we're, we've not seen him before, so he's—it's not like Simon Oates going off. And I would argue that Simon Oates would have been capable of carrying that, and he went down quite well with the ladies, as I remember. And that would have added a, a bit of appeal. I can't remember. I think it was seventy-one, seventy-two. Would have that been the time when he was actually playing Steed in the ill-fated stage show of the Avengers? Yeah, um, I suppose a really odd version because it, it was really so similar to what you'd seen on on TV was um, Keith Michelle in Henry VIII and his Six Wives. Yes, I mean that is, is just basically kind of posher frocks, isn't it? 
Yes. And uh, a bit more outdoor stuff, I suspect. I can't really remember it, to tell you the truth. But yes, if you're doing historical drama, then having it on the big screen in Technicolor would definitely be worth doing. Where else have we got? Uh, you mentioned Bless This House. That had... Uh, dearest, you would have Father, Dear Father, um, For the Love of Ada, um, Never Mind the Quality, Feel the Width. Was there a feature form of that? Uh, yeah, don't ask me why. Uh, how do you open that out? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, well, don't forget, going back to our template that we discussed earlier, Guy, uh, is, is that you have a partial section of it in the familiar precinct for which the TV series is, is famous, um, and then perhaps moving it uh, um, elsewhere. So I don't know, maybe they went to Spain on a holiday or something like that. Maybe. Of course, one thing we haven't mentioned is Steptoe and Son. Steptoe and Son, Steptoe and Son ride again. Um, and uh, obviously Till Death Us Do Part as well, and the Alf Garnet saga. That was uh, um, feature film fodder um, as, as well. Uh, so again, yeah. quite often, you know, one of the big changes, I guess, particularly with Steptoe and Son, was, uh, was, was more location work. Yes, yeah. And the ability to do things, even in the junkyard, mm. you get more angles. You're able to open that out a bit and uh, have things like the manure pile, where I think yes. a wedding ring yeah. gets lost in the manure pile. So that gives you more flexibility. I think they were reasonably successful, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea is not to have too big a radical departure from it and the idea to have writers and directors and like I said, um, you know, stars who who people are familiar with. So you would never get, um, you know, Ken Russell directing the feature film version of Father, Dear Father. Ken that Loach. would have been interesting, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, you know, it wouldn't have been Ken Loach's Bless This House. You know, the, we, we, we weren't using those successful British director resources. Thankfully, Michael Winner never had a crack at any of these. It would, yeah, would have been strange. Or Stanley Kubrick's The Lightly Lads. Yes, yeah, that, God, what? What would that have been like? Yes, Lightly Lads, kind of just outside the golden age, but coming off the back of the original Lightly Lads and whatever happened to the mm. Lightly Lads. 1976 British comedy film, the last screen appearance of James Boland and Rodney Pews together. Mm. There is some debate about why they never appeared together again. One version is that there was a misunderstanding about uh, whether a story about James Bolan, which might have been in the public domain, uh, but when Rodney Hughes died, James Bolan denied that there was any rift at all. So just leave that to historians to muse about. I think we've mentioned Callan, Porridge 1979, Rising yeah. Damp 1980, the Sweeney films, they're kind of just outside the golden age bracket, but it's the kind of, that's the legacy that goes on. It's the on. ripples, isn't it? It's the ripples. Of course, in terms of uh, going back to American films, I mean, apparently there was a big screen version of The Munsters. Um, yeah, Munsters Go Home, um, which was, uh, again, cashing in on the um, very snazzy music by, I think, is it Vic Mizzy? Um, and yeah, the notion of great, we've got all those familiar tropes um, and, and elements uh, from it. So, 
Uh, yeah, there would, uh, I, I suppose, again, would uh, um, another one which came full circle, because I think it's um, is Peter Gunn, because they had a feature film version of, of that with, with Henry Mancini's uh, um, catchy theme. Yes, I think that theme is probably the best thing about it, to be honest. Mm. It's it's quite interesting. It, it's got a flavour very much of those movies, um, like, like Flint, the Matt Helm movies. Yep. Isn't there a casino on a boat somewhere? I there's Outs. probably something wrong going on there, yes. Yes, and I think there's a less enlightened attitude towards transvestites. I think it's the best way to describe it. Um, but of course, the one, the elephant in the room regarding this, and it, it took an awful long time. It took something like 10 years for there to be uh, a motion picture made out of it after the series finished, is Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek. Now, that's uh, obviously the, the series had finished almost like a decade earlier. Um, there had been an, an animated series, which which is sort of confined to like Saturday morning cartoon time. Uh, and maybe this was one of the uh, the first examples of, of fan pressure. It would be, I suppose, two elements coming together. Fan pressure to say uh, that Star Trek is, is worthy a subject to, to have a big screen treatment, and in this case, directed by Academy Award winning you know, Robert Wise. Um, but also, Paramount weren't stupid enough um, not to look at the box office returns for Star Wars. And to realise that maybe, yeah, maybe we can we can get a little bit of a spin on this. It wasn't fantastically well received by fans, and it, it was a bit cold. It felt a bit like the Andromeda Strain. Um, uh, it's it, kind um, of cracking score by Jerry Goldsmith. Obviously, the main theme of which would then be incorporated um, into Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, Star Trek Two. Obviously, they decided that what they hadn't done was actually concentrate on the interaction of the characters and the family etc and i think that we should mention i hope i'm pronouncing her name right michelle nichols yes um, yeah um, who we've just lost um who was literally an icon for that decade and an inspiration for so many um, people of colour, young women, and even young men. Yes, <laughs> role model. Yeah, absolutely, role model. Um, so we inevitably we are going to be losing some of these people. I, I hadn't realised that she, um, when she was playing Lieutenant Tahura, that actually she was in her thirties. I thought she was a bit younger than that. Um, so a sad loss, but a great contribution. Uh, one um, last thing I would like to mention. Um, mm -hmm. is is obviously the we've we've spoken about feature films um you know being based on tv series and i had the misfortune the other night on film four to watch fantasy island um the bloom house and um version of uh the tv series with um ricardo montalban and her villages um and again this is a textbook way of how not to do it. Right. Would you like to pre-see that textbook? Because it's, again, it's, it seemed to be, oh, you know what? Why don't we base it on a TV series? Um, oh, are there any elements that we should take 
from the TV series, really? Nah, not really, no. Actually, it'd probably be okay. Uh, and it, I think there was three writers credited, um, and I don't think any of them came up with the ending, because it just appeared to be, uh, oh, crap, what? Well, look at the time, we're going to have to finish this off. Just leave it. It's like I'd made it. It was dreadful. <laughs> what really? year was that? 2019 or 2020. It's Michael Penner, or Michael Painter, who is the... Um, Mr. Rourke. Oh, right. Um, who's walking around in a white suit. Uh, and and that's sort of about it, for those of you who may remember the TV uh, um, series. But yeah, it, 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 much like the, the, the Man from Uncle, I don't think anyone at, at any point said to the production team, hey, you know, this is based on a TV series, don't you? Yes. Let's go back to the source. I wonder if there's anyone who actually created it and went back. Brian Clemens mm. was always surprised that nobody had got in touch when that thing happened in 1998. <laughs> and if he had been involved, then there might have been slightly more wit and pizzazz about it. But who knows? It's not always surefire basing a feature film on a TV series, as we've discussed. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it's a lottery. It is. You know, you'll sometimes, I guess, have those those films which, because they've so radically changed everything that everyone remembers, um, it sort of works, like The Untouchables. Mm, that's true. But that had a kind of proper driving plot. Mm. And it's, it's interesting, the ones that are still with us today i mean the main one is mission impossible yeah and, uh, you know there's a big two-parter um being made at the moment obviously and filming conducted locally guy in yorkshire yes i was hoping that tom cruise might just drop in for tea but lovely but uh, i think he might be busy so this has been the shop window of rose tinted black and white television the big screen version presented by David Newell and me, Guy Morgan. You'll be able to listen to our review show of the Saints that we haven't caught up with quite yet very shortly. That will be on our SoundCloud channel, as will this appear, because Buzzsprout are knocking off the earlier versions <sighs> of, of the shop window, uh, but they are archived on the Sound Station oh, SoundCloud channel. So... Thank you very much for listening and Auf Wiedersehen, Pet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, goodbye.